Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody, and welcome. Glad that you joined us for this show on which we're going to get a chance to chat with Todd Snyder, who is uh, a fine boxing author who wrote the book Bundini, Don't Believe the Hype. Uh, It's a book about Bundini Brown, uh, of course, the sideman, trainer, and hype man for Muhammad Ali during his great career. And the book is published by Hamilcar uh, Publishing, which, by the way, I think is the leading publisher of boxing books, and they have many great um, uh, titles in their catalog that you can go find. Go check out their website, and you'll see they have a lot of great books. Todd's is among them. Uh, We also, of course, will answer your questions and chat a little boxing, and for that, let me bring in my co-host, Mr. Trip Mitchell. Trip, how you doing? I'm doing great, and it, it's so good to be in the year 2021 for a number of different reasons. But this could be an amazing year in the sport of boxing. But you don't know. But we could have some amazing, amazing fights coming up. Yeah, I think uh, you know there are already a number of them on the board uh, for this year uh, that we see already. We already saw a very good. Uh, we've seen some good fights uh, already. And, uh, and now we're moving forward with it, and I, I think we're going to see some big names. Uh, uh, as the schedule fills in, there's already good fights on the board, but as the schedule fills in, I think we're going to see even more. Uh, and I'm very optimistic. I'm optimistic, among other things, about some of the bigger fights being made. Uh, we know, for instance, that the likelihood of Joshua and, uh, and Fury is very, very high, uh, and I think we're going to see, I'll go out on a limb and say, we're going to see at least several major fights with promoters and networks kind of figuring out how to make the bigger fighters get together. Uh, I know that's always dangerous to make that prediction in boxing, but I just feel like this is this year boxing is going to do that uh, because they understand how important it is to do that. Well, great. Well, let's get right off with the questions. Gerald Moody writes, what are the in-ring accomplishments that Floyd Mayweather had that are unique to him? Great question. It is a good question, you know, because we all know that Floyd Mayweather is, you know, the singular fighter of his generation, uh, a 50-0 record, uh, you know, and the skills in the ring that are just extraordinary. And yet, um, when you look at his resume, one of the things that jumps out to me is just the sheer number of champions, whether they be former, current, or future champions, that he fought during his career. And a total of 18 men that held world titles uh, were on his resume. And of course, he defeated all of them because he never lost a fight. And the other intriguing thing is that on that list, there are uh, four Hall of Famers, uh, Shane Mosley, Oscar De La Hoya, um, also Juan Manuel Marquez, and Arturo Gatti, uh, all four Hall of Famers that he has beaten. And then there are three men that we know are going to be in the Hall of Fame that he's beaten, Manny Pacquiao, Miguel Cotto, uh, and also uh, Canelo Alvarez, who is likely ticketed for Boxing's Hall of Fame. So the level of competition he has faced is pretty extraordinary. Now, I know some people nitpick, nitpick and say there were moments where he selected the right time to fight some of these people, but <laughs> I don't really know 
you know, I don't know if that takes diminishes the, the, the achievement that he had, because there were a lot of those men that he fought at a time when they were quite capable. Uh, and so I, 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 you know, I think the, the amount of when you fought 18 men that um, were at some point world champion and seven Hall of Famers that you beat, I think that's pretty darn good. So uh, that to me feels like the one thing you would point to for Mayweather. Okay, our next question, Augustus Tyler IV. Very classy fan, by the way. Al, how is it commentating on fights with little or no crowd? There's nothing like the energy of a packed arena for a fight. Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, you would think that it would have, and I've talked to other sportscasters who I'm friends with in all sports, and we've, we've discussed this issue uh, because we've all been put in a similar situation. You would think that it would have a bigger impact than it does. We live, when we broadcast the sporting event, while we're aware of the crowd and aware of the excitement, we're, in a kind, we're doing something that's very singular and very lineal and very directed. And so you're calling this sports action based on what it's generating. And so I think the effect on us is less than people might imagine. I know for me, even, even in, in the, the silence of our bubble, the action generates something that you can get excited about. And I, I feel like on our broadcast, we've done that. And I, in hearing other sportscasters, I think they've done it as well. So you're so focused on things that I think you kind of tune out the, um, uh, the fact that there isn't a crowd. Of course, it adds to things. It adds to the, to the broadcast. It adds to the event. Um, it's an important element. But we've found out something kind of interesting, I think, during this time, that from a CV standpoint, you can transmit what's going on and have it be interesting and exciting, even without the crowd. And of course, now in most many sports, crowds are starting to make their way back in, whether it's boxing or, or, or other sports as well. So we'll be hearing that in the near future. Now, um, one man who heard the crowd cheer many, many times was Muhammad Ali. And the man that was beside him, uh, figuratively and literally for that career, was the great Bundini Brown, who was a fascinating figure. You know, most people think of him as just this hype man that, you know, was all flamboyant and colorful with Muhammad Ali. But he was a lot more than that. And we know that now definitively from reading the book Bundini, Don't Believe the Hype by Todd Snyder. And I had a chance to talk with Todd about what is a very excellent book. Todd, this book that you have written about uh, Bundini Brown, um, which comes, you know, uh, many years after he was in the public consciousness, but was a fascinating topic to even undertake. What was it that made you want to write a book about Bendini Brown? You know, a lot of that had to do with my childhood. I grew up in a small town in West Virginia, Cowan, West Virginia, and my father was a boxing trainer. And I grew up in boxing gyms my entire life. And much of my youth was either playing around in the gyms as a kid or following him to fights on the weekend. Uh, so, you know, I was always interested in, uh, trainers and entourages, you know, I sort of see the sport through that lens. Right. And, and my father's hero was Muhammad Ali, of course. And, uh, one of his assistant trainers in the gym, we called him Bundini Dean was the nickname we had for him because yeah. he was my dad's right-hand man. So my whole life was, you know, watching those Ali documentaries, 
I think the first book I ever read cover to cover was Ali's biography from 75. Uh, you know, so Ali was my dad's hero and my father was my hero. So vicariously, Ali was the greatest thing in the world to me as a kid. Uh, but the lens I've always viewed the sport is through uh, trainers. You know, I've always been interested in trainers and entourages. That was sort of my introduction to the sport. The other reason that I was attracted to Bundini is today I'm an English professor at Siena College in Albany, New York, where I teach courses on hip hop history. And I've always viewed Bundini as a pre hip hop icon. Yeah. I grew up in the 80s and, you know, hip hop was my first love, like boxing was my father's first love. And Bundini was a little bit of what we both loved. He was Ali's poet laureate in the corner. And to me, you know, uh, Bundini was sort of pre-hip-hop. He, he was sort of the, he and Ali and the, and the rhymes they put together sort of created the archetype for what MCs would do a couple decades later. And it was back in 2014 where Chuck D of Public Enemy had visited my college for this event that I host called Siena Hip Hop Week. And uh, one of my students asked Chuck D, was Ali the first rapper? And the reason he asked that is Chuck was the narrator to that ESPN documentary, Ali Rap. Right. And, uh, and Chuck said, sure, you know, I, I, it's hard to argue that Ali wasn't the first rapper. And I jumped in and said, does that mean Bundini's the first hype man? And I remember Chuck D laughed at that and he said, you know, someone should do a book on Bundini. And that was always in the back of my mind after he said that. I thought, why hasn't there been a book on Drew Bundini Brown? I mean, he was part of what I loved yeah, about and, Ali. And <laughs> yeah, interesting. And I'm, I'm guessing uh, after reading the book, uh, be, and we're going to get into some of, the, some of the things about him, you probably uh, found him to be a more... Uh, interesting and wide-ranging topic to write about than even maybe you thought at first, correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I knew what most people know about Bundini, the rhymes, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. I knew it's Thomas Sugar Ray Robinson. I knew Bundini as sort of a boxing person. Uh, you know, I knew him from those Shaft movies with Richard Roundtree. You know, if you remember, Bundini played Willie, the gangster that's right. in those films. Uh, so that's what attracted me to the project. But when I learned about Bundini the man and learned about his life story, that's when I really uh, started to realize that there was this amazing American story that even the best screenwriters couldn't make up. This kid who grew up yeah, in no. Florida and, and sets out in the Navy as a teenager and ends up, you know, with no boxing background whatsoever in the entourage of maybe the greatest fighter ever in Sugar Ray Robinson. And then, of course, Robinson hands him off to the young Cassius Clay. Yeah, it's amazing. And that journey had some interesting nuances to it, like the fact that when he uh, and I, I, I don't remember if he married her before or right after Navy, he marries a white Orthodox Jewish lady in New York, thus making his, uh, you know, his associations with the world even more diverse. Yeah, you got to think about it. He grew up in Sanford, Florida, where the Ku Klux Klan really yeah. had a strong presence during his childhood in Seminole County, Florida. So he grew up in this really segregated, uh, you know, problematic background, poor background as, as a young black man. And then <laughs> through the Navy and through his time in the Merchant Marines, uh, ends up in Harlem in the jazz joints where he pals around with Miles Davis and all these right. jazz icons. And it, it was in one of those jazz clubs where he meets Rhoda Palestine who was a uh, white, you know, Jewish woman from an Orthodox Jewish family in Brighton Beach, New York. 
and they have this marriage that goes against all the conventions of the day. And in some ways, writing about his relationship with Rhoda and, you know, the, their son, uh, who was raised a Jewish man, bicultural, biracial, Drew Brown III, that was more fun than writing about the Ali and Sugar Ray stuff in some ways. Yeah. It's just as improbable for that time period. Yeah, totally astonishing. And you, you hit on the fact that, and you write about it in the book, there is something about Bandini that he gravitates, like you mentioned, Miles Davis. It's not like Ali was the first famous person he was around, or Sugar Ray Robinson. Somehow, and what, what do you think was the quality of this that made him just know these famous people or these uh, gifted people? You know, it's funny. Uh, a lot of my students, a lot of the younger audience, see him as sort of just a member of Ali's entourage. Yeah. He was, he was a part of the most famous entourage ever with Sugar Ray Robinson way prior to that. Uh, he just, he was this zealot-like figure who just popped up when big things were happening. And his weapon was the English language. Yeah. Uh, he could talk. And he could maybe the only person who could out-talk the great Muhammad Ali. He was just someone who could read people like you and I read books. Uh, you know, he was a hustler, but in the positive sense of the term. It, Gene Kilroy said this to me in an interview. He was someone who had no advantages in life, but any time an advantage came his way, he snatched it. And, and that's good, Bundini Brown. He was a hustler. A good comment. That's for sure. Now, so he, he, um, uh, he's with Ray Robinson, of course, arguably the greatest fighter of all time, uh, and Ali's uh, idol. And Tell people a little bit about how he's he moves from the Robinson uh, entourage to Muhammad Ali. Yeah, you got to think during his days with Sugar Ray, during the early portion of that, he was doing very menial work. He was an odd jobs guy. He was running errands for Sugar Ray. He even babysat his children. <laughs> so he wasn't doing much glamorous stuff in those first couple of years. But eventually he gets invited to uh, Greenwood Lake where he trains with Sugar Ray and shatters him just the way he did Muhammad Ali. Uh, you got to remember when Ali comes out of the Olympics, he wins the gold medal. Uh, the first offer they made uh, to be his trainer, the group of guys who put, you know, were managing Ali, was to Sugar Ray Robinson. I mean, that was his idol, as she mentioned. He wanted Sugar Ray to be his trainer. Of course, Sugar Ray was still fighting at the time. <laughs> you know, he wasn't ready to be a full-time trainer. Uh, that back and forth happens for a couple years. And eventually when Ali fights Doug Jones in Madison Square Garden, they meet up and, you know, Sugar Ray says to him, I got a guy who can really get you straight, set your, you know, set your career up the right way, keep you focused in training. Uh, and of course he, he says the famous line, he's the only guy who can out talk you. And it was Sugar <laughs> Ray's brother, brother-in-law who introduces the two right before the fight. It was the night before he fought Doug Jones. Yeah. And of course the Doug Jones fight was uh, not a great performance for Ali, something that he, uh, he won, but it, uh, it wasn't, it was the, Ironically, it was before he had the great performance against Liston. But um, and people, you know, you uh, point out that Bundini Brown was more than just a cheerleader to Ali. People think of him in that light and they think of him, the phrase hype man and all the rest. But he was more than that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all of the folks who I interviewed for the book who had a chance to train with Ali and had a chance to be a part of the the, the time down in Miami or the time at, you know, um, Fighters Heaven in, you know, Deer Lake, Pennsylvania, everyone sort of referred to Bundini as his spirit coach, his motivator. He woke him up for road work in the morning. He was there shadowing him through sparring and hitting a heavy bag. 
and keeping his spirit up. And of course, you know, during those first training camps, they coined a lot of those famous, famous lines that we know, felt like a butterfly, sting like a bee. So he was there to keep Ali happy, to keep him motivated. And I also think Bundini was sort of this person in his life who was a reality check. Bundini would tell him exactly what was on his mind. And, you know, he was, you know, he was a true friend who he could count on. Uh, and, and, you know, they butted heads a lot. Of course, you know, so we'll talk about Ali fired him many times. And yeah, bring him back. that was going to be my next question to you, actually, about the fact that there was not always a smooth ride. No, not at all. Uh, everyone I talked to said a different number. Oh, he fired him 12 times. No, it was yeah. eight times. That was 15 times. Everyone said something different. Uh, you know, Bundini gets labeled a yes man, but really the more you research you do, he was the opposite of a yes man. Sometimes he said things that he maybe should have even kept to himself. I mean, as you mentioned, he lived his life very different than Ali. He was married to a white Jewish woman. He wore a Star of David necklace around his neck. Uh, he liked to drink, as we all know. He he had a little problem with alcohol. He liked the nightclubs. Ali was living a much different life, uh, especially in those early days. Uh, so they were very different in some ways, and Bundini would stand up to him, and sometimes when he would do that, it would get him fired. But they would always bring him back. And uh, Gene Kilroy told me a great story. He said uh, one day Ali was looking bad in the gym, and they said, you know, a couple of the guys were talking and said, we need to get Bundini back. He's not working as hard. He, and, uh, you know. So they, they went over and waited for Ali to get in a good mood. And they said, don't you think it's boring around here? A little quiet without Bundini. Shouldn't we give him a second chance? And, he, you know, <laughs> Ali begrudgingly said, bring him back. But, you know, they knew Ali was just better in the gym with him. And maybe that's where the magic really happened. It wasn't just in the corner of those fights. Yeah. The way he was there, uh, keeping Ali up and motivated. And there was, it just brought more fun to the atmosphere of training which, you know, is, you know, it's grueling six to eight weeks, repetitious uh, behavior. It's not, it's not the most fun thing in the world to go to a training camp. And Boudini sort of, he kept Ali up. He kept him motivated and also made it fun too. Eddie Mustafa Muhammad told me a story about uh, when he was training in the Ali at Deer Lake. Uh, he, when he was light heavy champion Ali had invited him to come and train he said in the morning Bundini Brown would kick the door open and fire a shotgun in the air to wake everybody up <laughs> so <laughs> which yeah. I thought was pretty funny but in keeping with his uh his nature but um he as the Ali career uh went on of course Bundini uh, got his own you know identity uh and did that identity ever was that ever part of the the friction between them uh him being this kind of uh sec figure that that got a certain kind of attention yeah you know you got to think right after the joe frazier fight when ali comes back from exile that's when bundini starts doing the hollywood movies and if you go through his uh his his resume he was in six feature films he was even in the color purple, but you know, Steven That's Spielberg, amazing. Oprah, Oprah was in that, and Whoopi Goldberg, and of course, Quick Tillis, who Bundini was training on the side, was in the movie as well. Um, yeah, Bundini had his own set of friends, he had his own, uh, you know, it's Kalia Ali who said to me, uh, you know, a lot of the famous people Ali met for the first time, it was Bundini introducing him to these people, they had met Bundini first. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he had his own life outside of Ali. Um, you know, I don't know if that ever really got in the way of their friendship. Yeah. 
think that was the case, but I do think Boudini had a lot more going on than maybe some people realize, right? You mentioned the movies that he was in, uh, and one of the I thought one of the most endearing parts of the book was his son who would read the scripts uh, to him because he, you know, he needed that and would act out the parts and everything. I thought that was a, and of course his son was a big part of your research for the book. Yeah, you know, um, I couldn't have written this book without the help of his son, Drew Brown III. And, you know, I spent 14 months with him. I went down to his home in Atlanta multiple times. He let me look at his dad's, you know, he had writings and books that he never finished. Uh, you know, Bundini couldn't read or write on an adult level, but his wife, Rhoda, who you mentioned earlier, would type up his manuscripts and he would stand over her shoulder and he would write poems. He tried to write plays. He tried to write a book about his time with Sugar Ray. And I got to read all that stuff. And I got to mm. look through all their personal artifacts. Uh, and it was so exciting. But one of my favorite stories is that uh, when he got the deal with Shaft, of course, it was Gene Kilroy who hooked that up. Uh, you know, Bundini couldn't necessarily read the script. So his son would memorize the lines and they would practice in the kitchen together. And still to this day, his son knows every line in both of those Shaft movies. And he can recite <laughs> them and he sounds just like his dad. Uh, and I just, that, I thought that was a cool father-son bonding story of Bundini sitting in the kitchen, doing his parts and his son would play Shaft, you know, and they would go back and forth and practice the lines. And yeah, you know, Ali and Angelo and all those guys love those movies too. Angelo's son told me that, you know, his dad went to the premiere and just got a kick out of it. They were so happy for Bundini that he was in a big Hollywood movie like that. And it's interesting you bring up Angelo Dundee, longtime Ali trainer. He and Bundini Brown were able to mesh together, and uh, and of course Angelo's very good at uh, at at he, one of his great talents is is finding ways to 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 create uh, relationships with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny because when I went into this book. I knew for a fact that those two must have really disliked each other. I just knew it. And because my dad, when he was a trainer, he liked a really quiet corner. And he was yeah. the only guy who talked. And I used to work corners with my dad. And I would get the stool out and I would be doing all the stuff, but I would not talk. So I assumed Angelo was that way. But according to his son and the people I talked to, like Gene Kilroy and others in the entourage, they really hit it off well. And early on, Angelo realized Bundini brought something to the equation. Yeah that he didn't. And he, he just like Gene Kilroy understood Ali was a little better with him and they found a way to work, work it out together and coexist. And his son actually told me that sometimes on good days, Angelo would, would try to do the rhymes with them. You know, you try to come up with his own rhymes and, you know, of course, Bundini was the poet of the group. So, you know, they would yeah. tease him about his rhymes. <laughs> Intriguing. You, um, uh, as you did this book, uh, was there, where I know many things probably that you found out about Bandini that were intriguing. What was the most surprising to you? Yeah, the most surprising thing to me is I would have never imagined the life that his son and grandchildren live today. His son was a college basketball player and a first generation yeah. college graduate. His son was a motivational speaker. He was a fighter pilot in the Navy. Bundini was kicked out of the Navy when he was you know, a teenager. Right. Uh, it, his life really came full circle and he really wanted his son to go to college and, and multiple times in his childhood, he would say, dad, I want to be like Ali or I want to be like Sugar Ray. And he would say, no, Drew, you're going to be the educated Drew. You're going to college. 
And maybe that's not what we would expect from Bundini, right? We, we see him as this wild kind of charismatic guy, but he, he was in a lot of ways a really good father. And his son went on to do some pretty amazing things and his grandchildren are doing some really amazing things out in the world. Uh, his grandson is a spine surgeon. His, his granddaughter is a lawyer uh, in DC. Uh, it's just really neat to see the whole story. And as you mentioned, Bundini, we lost him back in 1987. And I'm so glad that the book came out now when it did, so we could tell the full story about, you know, how his philosophies and life lessons have, have went on to, you know, show up in the lives of his family members. That's the part about this book that I find fascinating because people will go in, you say the title of it, you know, Bundini Brown, Don't Believe the Hype is a great title because you will go into this book with certain ideas and you will leave with, uh, you know, different ideas and embellishments on anything you could have thought about him because you're going to find out all these things that will surprise you and, uh, uh, and a life, certainly a life well lived and a life that is, has many more nuances than people would ever expect. Yeah. I mean, listen, we, we all know Bundini's persona and he had this public persona uh, we, I tried not to hide, uh, you know, his demons or shy away from yeah. his downfalls. He he was someone who struggled with alcohol. He was not the most faithful husband to his wife, and you know they ended up divorced. He he had his demons, and of course he and Ali had some serious tiffs too. Bundini didn't really get along with the Nation of Islam. He wasn't that big on the the some of the teachings of the nation. Those frictions were real. Uh, there were a lot of things uh, that have been written about Bundini that are true. But I wanted you to see him as a man, as a husband, as a son. I wanted to talk about his tragic childhood. And he did have a very tragic childhood. And for him to make it out of those circumstances and achieve the things he achieved in life, I think it's a, it's a brilliant American story. It's, a, it's uh, like I said earlier, the kind of thing if it were on a movie made up, you wouldn't believe it. This is too exaggerated. No one can come from that and you know, you know, travel the world the way he did. He lived an amazing life, and I wanted to tell the full gambit of his story. Well, you did that, and uh, it was it's a, it's a just an excellent book, and I urge everybody to, uh, if you're a boxing fan or you have uh, even the slightest uh, interest in uh, the Ali Bundini Brown whole story, and uh, and and you even know about that era. You're going to find out some fascinating things uh, that that you didn't know, and you're going to learn about a man who was uh, very different than you imagined he might be. Uh, Todd, I appreciate you visiting with us, and uh, the best of luck with the book, which um, is uh, you know a superb literary effort. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and you know it's a blessing to get a chat with you about it. So thank you, Al. Thanks, Todd. All right, take care. So that was our chat with uh, Todd Snyder, and I assure you that you will enjoy the read. If you have even a casual interest in uh, Muhammad Ali, and who doesn't, uh, or Bundini Brown, if you know of him, or even if you don't know of him and you're a younger boxing fan and you want to relive some of the Ali history through the lens of uh, the man that was right beside him all the way, uh, this book is uh, a terrific book, and you should pick it up, uh, Bundini. Don't Believe the Hype, uh, published by Hamilcar, uh, which is um, a terrific uh, boxing publishing company. Uh, now, Tripp, I believe that we have some more questions, do we not? We do, but real quick before the questions, do you ever, as someone, we grew up in the same era, 
Will there ever be a boxer as famous Ali, as Ali ever again? It's a valid question. I, you know, one of the you can make the case that there are international celebrities like Manny Pacquiao, who who's known worldwide. Philippe Mayweather would be an example uh, of in more recent vintage. One of the the things that uh, I think prevents that is that while the world has gotten smaller and we can know everybody through social media, I think it's hard for one figure to dominate like that. So I don't know if a boxer is going to gain that kind of world acclaim. But we've seen in uh, two, two people I mentioned, Manny Pacquiao and uh, Floyd Mayweather, we've seen two fighters who are certainly world world have worldwide following. Uh, and and you can look at a fighter in MMA like a Conor McGregor, for instance, who has a, you know an amazing worldwide following. And so clearly, you know, you can reach a certain level. It's, it's just hard to imagine. Uh, you know, Ali's one of those iconic figures that literally was known to everyone on the planet. And even today, in our age of social media. That's a hard thing to achieve. Yeah, except for a Kardashian, but that's another story. Well, yeah. Well, well, when you're that talented and that have that much to offer, of course you're going to exceed everyone else. <laughs> he <laughs> said. He of, said, "Tongue firmly that, implanted in cheek." Well, that that is a clever lead-in to another fighter who may think he has the world uh, uh, right behind him, and that's uh, Adrian Broner. Uh-huh. Uh, Miguel writes in, thoughts on a potential broner progre fight? Yes, this, of course, has to deal with my friend Adrian, uh, who is uh, the charter member of the Al Bernstein Fan Club. Uh, and uh, uh, he, uh, the question asks about him fighting Regis Progre, who, of course, is a former 140-pound champion. And that's a fight that has been talked about. First, Adrian Broner has to fight on February 13th. That fight will be on Showtime, and I'll be announcing it. And they're looking for the opponent because his first opponent fell out because he had COVID, and now they're they're scrambling to find the next opponent for him. If Broner wins that fight, it is a very good chance that they may make his, the fight with Regis Progre, who is uh, a terrific fighter who uh, – has had only one loss in his career, and that was to Josh Taylor, um, uh, and uh, lost his world title in the process. A very close fight that could have gone either way. And, you know, for Broner, clearly, you know, he hasn't fought in uh, two years. He hasn't had a win in a fight in three years. Uh, Well chronicled are his issues, legal, financial, and even emotional, that he's uh, suffered outside the ring. So this fight back in, in February represents an important step for him in terms of his boxing career at age 31, which isn't that old in boxing, but still you're headed toward a period in your career where uh, you need to make sure that uh, you're winning and fighting in meaningful fights. And because he hasn't been very successful in the last couple of years, how much longer will that be tolerated by uh, by fans and everyone else that – uh, that dictates whether big fights happen. So we'll see. I think the Progray uh, Broner fight as a fight is a challenging one for Broner. Progray is a left hander who is, uh, can punch in volume, which is a big issue for Broner, uh, and has power and is a very natural 140 pounder. So I, I, I think it's a very difficult fight, one in which Broner would go in as the underdog, to be sure. 
<laughs> Unless you asked him, and that's another story. He would feel confident, I'm sure, that he would win the fight. But lately it hasn't gone that way for him, but we'll see. In in I can't imagine any fighters not liking you, but it's happened every once in a while. How is it to call a fight with someone who has thrown some barbs at you? Yeah, you know, I, it is. I mean, that's a very valid question. And, uh, you know, for those that don't know, all they have to do is Google Adrian Broner and I, and you'll you'll find out on on social media uh, that he and I had an interesting press conference uh, and uh, and it went viral. Um, you know, I have had very few experiences where I've had confrontational situations with boxers. Um, just hasn't happened that often. I'm not saying everybody adores me, but, uh, but for the most part, I've had very good relationships with boxers. I hope I've treated them with respect and, uh, and they've felt that. But on occasion, that's going to happen. And in Broner's case, he, you know, he's not fond of me. Uh, and so uh, when you're calling a fight, and I have said this publicly before, I'll admit to a faux pas I committed. After all that, you know, when I, it was even before the issue with Adrian Broner, when, when I was calling the fight uh, in which Adrian Broner fought Pauli Malnagy, who was a colleague of mine at that time in Showtime, uh, I admitted or thought about later, and it did admit to the fact that I believe I actually in my effort to be fair to Broner, I probably was more fair than I needed to be in the sense that I probably subconsciously shifted my my commentary to be a little more favorable to him than I should have been in a very close fight. And I said to Paulie, I apologize for doing that. It was uh, not done in, intentionally. Uh, it just kind of happened. And he was very gracious about it. Uh, and I believe I did that. Um, and you do that when you want to be very uh, sure that you're being fair. Now, fast forward to the the Adrian Broner press conference before the Pacquiao fight, uh, in which uh, he, you know, was uh, not too kind to me. And <laughs> <laughs> how's that for a euphemism? And I had to call the, his fight with Pacquiao. Uh, you know, and uh, subsequently had to call his his fight uh, another fight, and uh, well, no, not that was that was the last fight that I did. So he had the he had to fight Manny Pacquiao, and I had to call that fight without um, without malice uh, and try to be as fair as is humanly possible. And I believe that you can do that uh, because I'm j I try to take it out of the, that realm and look at everything that's happening in the ring and employ the techniques that I always employ doing a fight. So I'm going to talk about how many punches does he throw around? Uh, uh, what are his strengths? Uh, what has happened in fights like this? Uh, I'm going to take all the things that are the things that you can quantify that I do and then watch what I'm seeing and be honest about what I'm seeing. And, and I, you know, I think it's incumbent upon anybody doing that to try and be as fair as they can be. And so um, for me, I don't find it to be something that's uh, impossible to do. Uh, doesn't change how you feel about somebody or it doesn't change whether you're distressed at an interaction, but you can do your job the right way. Okay, good to hear. Redminster asks, what is the best 
book you've read on the sport of boxing, fiction, non, or both? That would be hard to say because I've read so many books, but I'm just going to pluck one out to use as an example of a great book that I read that maybe not everybody's aware of and that I think was a fantastic read. It's called The Ghosts of Manila. It is a book written by the late Mark Cram, whose son, Mark Cram Jr., is also a fine writer and has written extensively about boxing. Mark Cram was a phenomenal writer at Sports Illustrated um, in the 70s and 80s and, and maybe into the 90s as well, I'm going to say. And he covered the Ali Frazier fight, among other fights in that era. And wrote a book in the early 2000s called The Ghosts of Manila, as I mentioned. And in it, he revisited that fight and revisited Ali and Frazier's rivalry. It is, I think, a unique look at how these two men interacted. And one of the things that makes it unique is he doesn't shortchange Joe Frazier in this book. You know, Muhammad Ali is a big figure. And Muhammad Ali is one of those people that, as you mentioned, worldwide known to literally everyone, uh, and somebody who demands most of the oxygen in the room and most of the oxygen in a discussion that relates to him. Mark Cram didn't quite approach it that way. Uh, he wanted to make sure that Joe Frazier was talked about in this book in a way that was appropriate for Joe Frazier's part in this and how much he contributed to that fight and to the rivalry with Muhammad Ali, which isn't to say he shortchanged Ali, but I thought that was one unique aspect of it. So the book is brilliantly, brilliantly written. And, uh, uh, you know, anybody who is mildly interested in boxing at least is aware of that great rivalry. So that's one of the ones that I would point to. What is what is your what are one of some of your favorite boxing or sports books? Well, and and you just put me on the uh, on the spot here, but it's very interesting. There's some great humor writers from Sports Illustrated who've been through there. Rick Riley, everything Perfect. that he yeah, writes, he's great. I love uh, Mark Mulvoy, the hockey writer. Sports Illustrated at a time was the the best spot you could go. And when you were talking about being down in Manila. For a while, if you're a Sports Illustrated writer, you had the best expense account. You flew first class. Yeah. It was a good gig. Now, it, you've written a couple boxing books. Uh, I have do you want to hype them couple, right now? Yeah. I, I did write the book uh, 30 Years, 30 Undeniable Truths uh, about boxing, sports, and TV, which will not be mentioned in the same light as Mark Cram's book. Uh, but <laughs> but it was. I, I hope it's a fun read, and if people get a chance to look at it, they can take a peek. And you can you can hold my question in, in abeyance, and somewhere on a future podcast you can answer it. But I love what you said about the Sports Illustrated writers, because for me, as a youngster, the first – inkling I had that I wanted to be a writer or a, a sports journalist, whether it's in, in, in uh, you know, writing or in uh, the media, was reading Sports Illustrated. My mom got me a, a, a subscription to Sports Illustrated for my, I think, my 10th birthday, or 9th or 10th birthday. And it was right around the time when uh, Ingemar Johan, uh, Floyd Patterson was fighting Sonny Liston, and, he, and Floyd was on the cover. And I loved Floyd Patterson. And uh, it was when I read those stories and some of them probably were a little beyond where I should be reading because they were so well written and the um, vocabulary in those stories was so good, but I still 
got through it, and I, it, it helped me learn about writing and learn about uh, the use of the English language. So uh, you're right to, to uh, praise those great writers in Sports Illustrated, some of the best writers ever in sports or non-sports. Well, we, uh, we're going to have uh, next week one of the best uh, boxers of the last 25 or 30 years. The great Andre Ward will be joining us as our guest. Um, he, of course, is now inducted into, will be inducted into the Hall of Fame. He has been named as one of the inductees to the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And uh, we always look forward to uh, chatting with Andre and uh, in our next show, we're going to chat with him. Uh, but my, first, we have to mention our friend Tom Yankello. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, a gentleman who works with Hall of Famers. He's worked with uh, Roy Jones Jr. Uh, and many others. Fine trainer, uh, Tommy Ankello, who has a great website, the World Class Boxing Channel, which is actually a, a YouTube channel, uh, World Class Boxing, in which he does some great videos uh, about the sport. Um, they're, they're partially instructional, but they're also historical. And you can learn the sport from the ground up by looking at his videos. So, um, so you want to go check that out, World Class Boxing on, uh, on YouTube, and you can uh, get some great insights into the sport of boxing from Tom. Uh, so we want to thank, I want to thank Tripp, of course, for his fine efforts. Also, Todd Snyder for joining us. Uh, very happy that I was able to interview him. Again, if you enjoy boxing books, Bundini, uh, Don't Believe the Hype is a great um, read, and you'll enjoy it. It's uh, published by Hamilcar uh, Publishing. And, of course, my thanks to all of you for joining us on this, and uh, we'll see you next time.